Appreciate that good singing. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter number 7. Genesis chapter number 7. It's a blessing to be in the house of the Lord with you. Boy, what about that sunshine out there? What a blessing that is. Amen. I, uh, the message I'm going to preach this morning, I had prepared a couple weeks ago. God never gave me liberty to preach it. And I think I figured out why, because I'm going to preach on the flood this morning. And uh, I think maybe you just couldn't bear it while there's still storm clouds in the sky. And uh, I started to wonder last night, I don't know if you got any rain out your way, but we got quite a bit out our way. But now that the sun's come out, uh, I can preach this message. Hopefully it won't scare you too bad. Amen. Genesis chapter number 7. We're going to read the entirety of this chapter. And uh, it's not very long. There's 24 verses in it. But I hope you'll be patient through the reading. I want you to pick up on a few themes and truths in this uh, as we preach on Noah and the flood. Verse number 1, the Word of God says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. And of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. The rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered." And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. Every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowls of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. 
the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this beautiful day that you blessed us with. And Lord, of all days, it's a Sunday when we can be in the house of God, when we can hear the songs about you and of you sung, when we can worship you, when we can hear the preaching of your word. Let us just saturate our hearts this morning. Uh, in you, Father, in the, in the blessed Holy Spirit, in the truth of your word, in the focus and priority of worship, uh, let us just yield ourselves entirely unto you this morning that your will might be accomplished in our lives. And Father, there might be somebody in a crowd this size that they've had religion their whole life, they've been in church, uh, they know the formality of it, they know the ritualism of it, but they don't have a relationship with you. I pray that they not leave this building ere they have bowed their heart and head before you and received Christ as their personal Savior, that they might be eternally saved and know it, Lord, for your glory and honor. Bless what takes place here this morning in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I believe in the story of Noah and the ark, which is a familiar story. No doubt that was one of the first things you were taught about when you, as a young child, went into Sunday school. Uh, you've probably heard a thousand preachers preach on this, and you've probably heard me preach on it not a thousand times, but more than once. But I believe when we read this passage, and really, you know, the story of Noah is bigger than just chapter number 7. Uh, this is the culmination of the first 1,600 years of human history and what transpires in the prior chapter, in this chapter, in the next chapter. Uh, God has created man, and man has corrupted himself, and then God uh, rescues and redeems man from that corruption, and God gives him a new life and a new world to walk around in. You know, when I hear it said that way, it sort of reminds me about what the Lord did when He saved you and me. Uh, we were corrupted. We'd made a mess of our life. Uh, we couldn't fix ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. But God in His mercy and wisdom and grace redeemed us, gave us a new life, gave us a new world, we might say, to walk around in. God changed us inestimably and eternally for His glory. And when we read these chapters, I cannot help but see uh, what is an analogy, uh, what is a, a direct link between what happened in Noah's day and what exists in our day. And we might say in a broader sense, what is the situation of the human condition? In other words, I, I think when we read this, we find some truths that apply to just how human beings are. The situation they're in, where they stand with their God that has created them. I think when we see this ark, we cannot help but see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I can this morning, I want to draw your attention to four simple thoughts found in this chapter and in the prior chapter that I think paints a portrait of the lost man's condition and of the world at large. Why don't you look back in chapter number 6. This is sort of where this whole ball gets rolling because after God in chapter 5 gives the lineage of Seth, which of course is the, the family and the lineage in whom there was the light and witness and testimony of truth, God turns His attention to humanity at large and describes what He sees to be the condition of man. Can I say something to you this morning? Listen, it matters a whole lot less what I think of you than what God thinks of you. It matters a whole lot less what society will permit and condone and legislate and legalize and applaud than what God thinks about us. And can I just make a simple statement very quickly? Uh, the world, society may be awful proud of itself right now, but there has probably not been a time between this chapter and now in which we have been more displeasing to God as a society. 
the mantra and message of today is self-aggrandizement, self-glorification, man. Uh, you see it embodied. i got to be careful. I don't want to get off the rails here, but you see it embodied in all these award shows. I don't know why anyone cares about award shows. I'll be honest with you. I love you, but if they's given you an Oscar, I wouldn't show up for it. And but but they'll have these these Emmys and Grammys and Oscars and all these things and and what a case study it is in in, in the depraved condition of man. You got a bunch of people got more money than most small nations that get together and complain about you and I for having too much money, and people that get together that don't produce anything of of any benefit or worth or value in society that get together and tell each other how wonderful they are. If that ain't a picture of man in his lost condition condition, self-congratulating himself, congratulating each other, talking about how great and glorious and grand we all are. Meanwhile, everything's in the toilet. I don't know what is a clear picture of the human condition. And so I think when we begin this passage, we have a description of what God saw when he looked at the world. Let me say, number one, I want to draw your attention to the society of Noah's day. Look at verse number 5. God makes three definitive statements about the world that Noah was living in. Notice verse 5. The Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Again, let me underscore those first three words. And God saw. Uh, The rest of the world thought they was doing all right, but when God saw the world, He saw that, number one, man is degenerate. Uh, And let me say it this way, they are degenerate, and you can see that by their actions. God looked down at a world that thought they were okay, but everything that they did was walking in contravention, direct contravention, to what He had revealed to be true and right and righteous and holy. And though man thought he was okay, when compared to God's standard of righteousness, man was degenerate. We've gotten a habit today, even as Bible-believing Christians, of, uh, uh, of thinking, and I, I don't know that we out and out say this, but we sort of we sort of allow the barometer of what we believe to be socially acceptable to be dictated by what society believes to be socially acceptable. Can I give you just a small illustration, man? Back two, three, four weeks ago, I don't know. There's like ten years of news wrapped up in a week anymore, so it's hard to keep track of what's going on. But the governor of Virginia made some statements about infanticide. And he, he said that uh, if a baby is born alive, what should happen is, is then that baby should be made comfortable. By the way, can I just stop here and say this? They voted down even wanting to make the baby comfortable. They, they voted down even wanting to give that baby any kind of care whatsoever. They voted down transporting that baby from an abortion center to a hospital where that baby can get help. They don't even... We're appalled that he said that baby ought to be made comfortable before it's killed. I'm telling you, there's people passing laws that say they don't even want the baby to be made comfortable. He said we need to make the baby comfortable. And then a conversation needs to ensue between the doctor and and the mother. and, And they need to decide what to do with this baby. And what he means is whether to murder that child or whether to not murder that child. And there was a collective gasp from the world, it seemed, at this thought. But can I say something to you? You know why we are in this mess? Because 40 years ago, when they were preaching safe, legal, and rare, and only in the cases of rape and incest, God's people, Bible-believing people, were willing to give them a pass and say, well, in those circumstances, maybe it's okay. 
Let me tell you something. It was wicked. It was uh, out of hell back then. It was murder then. And it's murder today. But we have let the world set the barometer of what we consider to be okay. If society says it's acceptable, we say, well, maybe it's not so bad. And every time society steps over that boundary, we get faux outraged at the thought that they would dare do that when the fact is we should have been legitimately outraged for the past 40, 50 years. I'm just telling you that uh, we look at society sometimes, even even as Christians, we allow society... But God looks at it and He says, man, that's wicked. That is wicked. Uh, the Bible says when God looked at, at, at the earth in this day, and I would even go so far as to say that there probably are worse things going on today than there were in that day, but He looked at it and He said that the wickedness of man is great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When he looked at man's actions, he saw they were degenerate. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says, And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Two different times there. The Bible uses an interesting word to describe God's heart condition. And it says He repenteth Him. Now, listen, you and I, when we think of the word repentance, we think of the idea of, of a direct turnabout and change of our desires and wishes and aspirations. When we say something repents us, what we're saying is, I was wrong, but I want to be right. But God is never wrong. God is always right. And so what it means is this, that it grieved, and it says it plainly in the text, it grieved God. It's not that God's saying I would have done anything different, but it's saying this, I'm paying for the fact that I have created them. I'm grieved by what they're doing. I wish they were living a different way, and it troubles me, it grieves me that they are living in the way that they are. Can I say number two to you this morning? That when man, when God looked at man's actions, He saw they were degenerate. But when He looked at their position, He saw they were displeasing to Him. In other words, God says this, there is a problem between me and my creation. I've created them to be a certain thing, but they are walking in direct contradiction to that. And God said, it grieves my heart the way that they're living and the way that they're behaving. You know the biggest problem that a lost man has? The biggest problem that a lost man has is, is not that he, that he does unrighteously. It's not that he does wickedly. It's not that he displeases the people around him. It's not that he's a social pariah and all those things may be true. But you know, when you get to the very, very core of why a lost man is lost, a lost man is lost because he is at direct odds with his Creator. It does not matter how moral a man tries to be until his sins have been dealt with. He is a, an enemy of God. There is enmity between him and God. He is at odds with him. There must be a reconciliation that takes place. There's a lot of people walking around in the world today think they're all right because they was raised in a Christian home, think they're all right because they're good people, think they're all right because they're good kids, think they're all right because they go to church, think they're all right because they try to do the right thing, live by the golden rule. But none of that addresses the enmity that exists between the lost man and God. There has to be something done about that nature. I see in this passage that when God looked at their position, they were displeasing Him. God was displeased. The world may congratulate themselves, but God is disgusted by the way that the world is living. He's not surprised by it, but He's disgusted. He's displeased at the condition of the world. But then look at verse 11. The Bible says this, "...the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt." 
corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. I think it's interesting that the Holy Ghost uses the term corrupt three times right in a row. Because when we talk about something that is corrupt, we're talking about something that at one time was pure, but now has been tainted and is intrinsically wrong and bad. The problem is not what's around it. The problem is what's within it. I'll share a little illustration with you about some things that our family has been going through. You know, my father-in-law has been uh, going through this liver transplant process. And I, I listen, I appreciate so much the prayers of, of God's people. We need prayers. He needs prayers. I believe the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But they, they, they tried, I don't know, he's, they, they tried to put, I believe, two different livers in, but couldn't, uh, because they were not viable. And they finally put a liver in. And they've been struggling to get all of his, everything stabilized and normal and everything. And he wound up with an infection, and they thought, man, that's weird, where did that come from? And they found out that very likely this infection, uh, was inside the liver itself. And so you could treat all of the outside, But you couldn't do anything about the fact that the liver itself was corrupt. They could go in and debreathe the the wound. They could go in and and put a wound back on it. They could go in and try to clean out all the infection. But the liver itself on the inside had an infection. So it didn't matter what you did. That liver itself, though it was helping in some ways because it was trying to filter the blood, it was also the very source of the infection that was giving him problems. You know, that's a lot how a man's situation is. Man's nature is depraved. When God looked at man's disposition, He saw depravity. The problem is this. It's not that we are good people living in a wicked world. It is that we are wicked people living in a world that we are causing wickedness to dwell in. In other words, there is this concept and idea uh, in secular humanism that all the world's problems are without. And that, by the way, informs a lot of this socialism garbage that you see being preached is the idea that, well, man's basically good on the inside, so if his life isn't good, it's because somebody must have oppressed him from the outside. And if we just get the government to come in and get rid of all those oppressors, what really winds up happening is the government becomes the ultimate oppressor. But the idea is if we can just change man's environment, man's circumstances, that's why we pour money endlessly into a broken school system. That's why we try to build and, and, and uh, budget and we do everything we can to subsidize and prop up because the idea is we're okay, it's just our environment. But the fact is our environment is as broken as it is because we ourselves are broken. And except something changed. When God looked at man, He said, I created them in perfection. I put them in a garden. I put them in a perfect environment. They had everything they needed, but they chose to do the wrong thing. And it corrupted their way. The Bible says that by Adam, death entered into the world. In other words, man's nature was corrupted because of Adam's choice to sin. And now it's nascent, it's inherent, it's intrinsic within the condition of man. It don't matter how try, how good you try to be at the end of the day, a lost person will always have more of a drive to do wrong than to do good. Even a saved person will still have the drive to do wrong, but then at least we have the drive to do right through the Spirit of God in our hearts. But a lost man, no matter how moral he can be, will always be spiritually dead until he's raised from the grave of his sins. I see the society that Noah lived in. Look over in chapter number 7. I see the sentence that God gave to this society. Uh, Again, I told you I wanted to read through the entirety of chapter 7 because I wanted you to pick up on this theme. There is a, a phrase that is used three times, and it sums up 
what God said about what He was going to do to this world. God said He was going to destroy the world. Uh, Peter says it this way, that God spared not the old world, but that He preserved Noah. He rescued Noah. He, he protected Noah. But God looked at the world and He said, I cannot permit this to go on. I am done. My spirit will no longer strive with man. I must judge the world. Now, here's the thing. Part of the problem in our society today is we have lost our fear of the judgment of God. We liken the judgment of God to the excommunication of a church. And we think, well, that just means I'll kind of be uh, in bad with God and I won't be in good favor, and, uh, but God will treat me like a black sheep. No, listen, friend. Uh, the judgment of God upon a lost person's life is the most severe, destructive, damning thing that could ever uh, be gone through by a person. There is no more severe punishment than the judgment of God. And I think we have this illustrated. I want you to notice verse number 18. Three times the Bible says this, that the waters prevailed. Now remember, these waters are the judgment of God on society. And three different times God's judgment washed over mankind and brought judgment to Him. Look at verse number 18. I want you to notice there's three important truths we learn about the judgment of God. The Bible says, "...and the waters prevailed." and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. Now, we've seen a lot of water around East Tennessee lately. And one of the things that is fascinating, there's two things that fascinate me. Anytime there's any kind of flood, and I've got this little uh, drainage ditch in front of my house. Uh, if it kept raining like that, I was going to sell my house, I was going to say it's creek front. Amen? Because that drainage ditch just it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But there's two things that I always... I don't know why. You know, you ask yourself the same things over and over again. You ever drive and you say something dumb to yourself and think, well, I'm glad nobody heard that. I, I, I was pulling out of my driveway. I looked over and I see what is a small river that you could almost kayak down coming down my yard. And I thought to myself, the first thing I thought is, man, where's it all coming from? Where's it all coming from? And then I thought, well, dummy, from the sky... But then I thought this question, where's it all going? But you know, sooner or later, uh, you can drive through Powell when it rains like that, man. It's just, it's all like lakefront. But sooner or later, the waters, they begin to abate. Sooner or later, they don't prevail forever. Sooner or later, they begin to abate. But here the Bible says the waters, they prevail. There was nothing that escaped the judgment of God. And it's a reminder to me that you cannot, listen carefully, outlive God's judgment. We see the destruction of it. You cannot outlive God's judgment. No one is bigger, no one is badder, no one is better than the judgment of God. There are people in the world today that aren't used to this concept. They've been used to buying and selling people and problems uh, just at their whim. Uh, they don't. Uh, they have no concept of the idea of consequences and life and reality. Let me tell you one of the greatest things you can do for your kids is teach them that life is an exercise in consequences. There are consequences whether you like it or not. But we have an entire generation of young people that is growing up being shielded and being protected from the consequences of life. And consequently, we've raised a generation of people that think they're never going to have to reckon with God. But the fact is, sooner or later, the waters will prevail. Your heart will quit beating. Your lungs will quit breathing. Your brain will quit firing off synapses. You will leave this life, go into the next. You cannot outlive the judgment of God. You are, when that day comes, you will be overcome by it. You cannot outlive it. Let me give you a second truth. Look at verse 19. The Bible says, and the waters prevailed, but now there's, there's a qualifier. The waters prevailed, or a modifier, exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills 
that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. We see the destruction of God's judgment in verse 18. You can't outlive it. But notice number two, the domain of God's judgment. And I put it this way, you can't outrun it. You can't outrun it. The Bible says that the waters prevail. What's the first thing that you do if flood waters start coming? You seek higher ground. I got news for you. For the lost person that won't go to that rock that's higher than I. For the lost person, there's no ground high enough that you can outrun God's judgment. There's no amount of money you can give to charity. There's no amount of good works that you can do. Uh, there's no church that you can join. There's no uh, amount or, or mode of baptism that you can engage in. There's literally nothing aside from getting in that ship, getting in that boat. There's nothing you can do to get higher than the judgment of God. We may think we're above it, but sooner or later, we're going to have to face it one way or the other. Look down to verse 24. We find this phrase again. The Bible says, And the waters prevailed upon the earth an hundred and fifty days. I had to do a little Googling for this, but I want you to think with me for a moment about the duration of God's judgment. In other words, those waters were up above those mountains, were covering the entire earth for a hundred and fifty days. Now, the average person can hold their breath for about three minutes before they pass out. I know this by the internet. I don't know it by experience. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, listen, I, I, I don't, I don't hold my breath unless I'm underwater. I don't run unless I'm being chased. I don't climb unless I gotta get away from something. That's just me. But the average person can hold their breath for three minutes before passing out. And then when you pass out, you just involuntarily, you begin breathing again. By the way, uh, can I just clue all the kiddos in on it? Uh, that whole thing of holding your breath, we are gonna win that. Sooner or later, you're going to pass out and start breathing. Amen? Uh, That's a a losing battle. 150 days, and I had to do the math on this. I guess I could have done it back of the envelope, but, you know, our smartphones have made dumb people. 150 days is comprised of 216,000 minutes. So, in other words, the, the longest that a person could hold their breath before they pass out and begin spontaneously, uh, 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 begin unconsciously breathing, the longest they can do it, is one seventy-two thousandth of the amount of time that those waters prevail. Elizabeth Warren has a greater chance of being a Cherokee Indian than you do of holding your breath as long as the floodwaters were upon the earth. You know, it's a reminder to me of this. The duration of God's judgment, you can't outlast it. You can't outlive it, you can't outrun it, but you can't outlast it. I think sometimes people in the world have this mistaken concept that, that and, and I say they have it, the Catholic Church has instilled it in them, this idea of purgatory, this idea that when you die, you just go into kind of a prison condition and, and until somebody prays you out or until they pay you out. Isn't that convenient that they can put a dollar amount on what it takes to get people out of hell? That's just a little too convenient for me. But this idea that hell is a temporary thing, that you just you go there and you're kind of you're in time out, you're in the corner, you got your nose on the chalkboard, and, and, but sooner or later you'll pay your way out and you'll get out and everything will be fine. The Bible describes hell as being a place where the smoke of their torment ariseth up forever and ever and ever. 
the Bible describes the uh, lake of fire as being a place from which no man can depart. Whenever uh, the Bible describes the rich man being in hell in Luke chapter number 16, the Bible says that Abraham told him, said, there's a great gulf between us and I can't go to you and you can't go to me. There ain't no going back. I'm here to tell you this. Listen, the judgment of God, when it sets in, when it is enacted in a lost person, when they die in their sins, there's no turning back. When a lost person dies in their sins, it is too late. As long as they draw a breath, as long as they have a thought, there's hope. But the moment that they leave this world, go from this existence to an existence in hell, into eternity, there is no hope anymore. You can't outlast it. You can't outlast it. Look in chapter number 6, though. There is good news. I see the society in Noah's day. I see the sentence of that society in Noah's day. Thank God that God had a plan. God always has a plan, man. You and I might not have a plan, but God has a plan. And God's plan revolved around a ship. It revolved around a boat, around a vessel. God commanded Noah to build an ark. Look back in verse number 13. I want to, we'll read down to the end of the chapter because I want to say a few things about this boat, this ark, this ship. The Bible says in verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. This is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So God's going to send floodwaters upon the earth. He's going to destroy every living thing that breathes with the nostrils. But before he does, the Bible says that he tells a man named Noah, Noah, build an ark for you and your family I'm going to rescue humanity. I'm going to rescue my creation through this ark. I want you to notice a few things about it, but before we even get into it, can I just say that the only hope Noah had of escaping the judgment waters of God was this ark. And this ark is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope that a lost person has of escaping God's judgment waters is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think when we look at this ark, we find a few things that remind us of the Lord Jesus. Number one, let me say it was supernatural. You say, preacher, what do you mean it was supernatural? Does that mean it was a ghost ship, that it was a spirit, that it was transcendental, that it was not material? No, what I mean is this. Number one, it was designed by God. God didn't say, Noah, why don't you pick you out some vessel that you think will make it through these floodwaters? 
God didn't say, you know, Noah, it don't really matter to me how you get there. Whatever's comfortable for you, if you want to go buy you a Bayliner or a John boat or whatever interests you, if uh, maybe you want a submarine, I don't care, but Noah, just whatever is interesting to you, whatever whatever's comfortable for you, whatever makes you feel comfortable, that's what I want you to get. No, God said, listen, Noah, if you want to make it through these floodwaters, there is one boat that can get you through. This is how to build it. Can I remind you of this? Listen, we live in a world today of buffet-style spirituality. Now, you say buffet-style Christianity. I guess that is true even about church people. But I'm talking about the world at large, buffet-style spirituality. How many times you hear people say this, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You know what that means? That means they ain't got enough sense about religion to say anything about it, so they just say, well, I'm spiritual. They don't want anyone asking them to quote a catechism. So they say, well, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. The reason is because spiritual, unless it's in the context of scriptural truth, don't mean nothing. It could mean anything. Everybody could say that they're spiritual. Listen, those cats at the golf course this morning laying out of church, they're spiritual in their mind. Those folks up there, I don't know if they're at the lake yet, uh, but uh, it's 70 degrees. I promise you there's somebody up there. They're spiritual in their own way. What they want, listen, they, 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 want the, they want the idea, but they don't want the framework. They don't want the truth of it. They, they want the, the testimony, but they don't want the truth of it. And so there's people say, well, I'm not, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And in this day of buffet-style spirituality, quote-unquote, people say, you can get there any way that you want. But i got news for you. There's only one boat that's going to make it through God's judgment waters. And it's the one that God picked out. It's the one that God said was pleasing. It's the one that God honored. It's the one that God certified when a voice spake from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Hear ye Him. It was designed by God. It was perfectly pleasing to God. Everything about this ark, if Noah built it just the way that God said, and I expect he did, everything about it was exactly what God wanted it to be. And the same thing is true about the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything about Him was exactly what God wanted and needed in a person. He lived a perfect, sinless life. It was designed by God and it was distinguished by God. It was God's chosen vessel. So that's what I mean when I say it was supernatural. This wasn't Noah's boat. This was God's boat. You better get on God's boat if you want to get through the judgment waters. But let me say number two, it reminds me of Jesus because it was sealed. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by sealed? Well, God had told Noah back in chapter number six, the first thing when he's talking about this ark in verse 14, he says, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark. Boy, I'm glad he made room in the ark, aren't you? And he says, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Now, that word pitch, it's an Old Testament word. And it basically means mud. That's really what it means. It means mud. In the strictest sense, the word, it's a kafar, it means covering. This is the same word that's used whenever another ark was built by a woman named Jochebed for a little boy Moses. When she pitched that ark within and without so that the waters of the Nile River could not get in. But you know, there's another time that this word pitch covering is used. The Bible says in the Old Testament that once a year, the high priest was tasked with making an atonement for the people. He would give a sacrifice and he would go into the uh, glory, uh, the uh, holy of holies and go into the mercy seat and he would take the blood from that sacrifice and it would be a covering on the mercy seat. The Bible says it would cover the sins of the people for another year. And the same word used for pitch is used there, covering, kafar. It has the idea of atonement. And it reminds me, listen carefully, of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This pitch reminds me, because of the material of the ceiling, it reminds me of Jesus and His blood. Only the blood of Jesus can address your sins. 
Only the blood of Jesus. Hey, listen, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No amount of baptism or church membership or good works or just willing it to be so. We're not. Hey, we're not saved by the will of man. Uh, no amount of just willing it so, it takes the blood of the Lord Jesus. Now, you might say, preacher, what does that mean? How do I get that blood in and on my life? Well, it's very simple. You uh, ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sins based upon what He did when He shed His blood. You take all your sins and you say, Lord, uh, let me just put those right under your blood and allow your blood to make the payment for my sins. It's through faith in that blood. I, I think it's a picture of the Lord Jesus' blood uh, in the material of the sealing, but also in the manner of the sealing. The Bible says this, that He was to seal it within and without. That tells me is there was nothing outside that was going to get in. There was nothing inside that was going to get out. But it also reminds me of the righteousness of Christ, that He was righteous through and through. One day there was a young ruler who came to the Lord Jesus and asked Him a question that a lot of people asked. said, Master, what must I do? He says, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so the Lord gives him the answer. When you inherit something, you're getting something by death that belongs to you, that's owed to you. And he says, if you want uh, eternal life to be owed to you, then here's how you do it. Keep all the commandments. And the young man lied to the Lord Jesus. I don't know if he meant to lie or if, if he believed what he said. But he said this. He said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now, nobody's done that. But evidently in his heart and mind, he thought that he had done that. But you know, before the Lord Jesus ever even went down that road, he, when the man came to him and said, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Before he ever even went down that road, the Lord Jesus said, Why callest thou me good? There's none good save God. That's one. There's none good save That's God. He's the only one. What he was establishing was this. He was getting that young man to admit before they even went down the road that he wasn't good, that he wasn't righteous, that he wasn't okay. But now the Lord Jesus could say that. You know why? Because he is God. He is good. The Bible says uh, three ways about the Lord Jesus that He was sinless, that He knew no sin, He did no sin, and in Him was no sin. In other words, He had no external sin of His actions. He had no intellectual sins of His mind. He had no inherent sins of a sin nature. He was wholly separate from sinners. That's the reason He's the only boat that can get you in. Every other boat's got leaks in it. I don't care who it is. I don't care what religious leader it is. I don't care if it's, I don't care if it's Buddha. I don't care if it's uh, Muhammad. I don't care if it's Mary Baker Eddy. I don't care if it's, I, I don't know, there's a bunch more. Martha Stewart, is that one? I, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Oprah. Somebody say amen there. They all got holes in them. Including your preacher, your pastor, your church. We all got holes in us. There's only one that's sealed within and without. And that's the Lord Jesus. So I think He reminds me because it was sealed. Then He reminds me of the Lord Jesus because this boat was sufficient. This boat had to do two things. Number one, it had to hold the faithful. It had to hold those that were willing to come in to it for protection. I I put it this way. This boat was not designed for everybody because not everybody will be saved. Now stay with me. But it was designed for anybody because anybody could be saved. I want to be careful with what I'm saying there. Listen, I know Christ tasted death for every man. If every man on the earth decided, every man, woman, and child, they want to turn to Christ in salvation, He's righteous enough, He's powerful enough, He's glorious enough that He could save every one of them. And, and the fact is, anybody could have gone on this boat. But I don't think everybody was going to get on that boat. And I recognize this truth that God can save absolutely anybody. Not everybody's going to be saved. Not everybody's going to turn to the Lord. Not everybody's going to bow their will before His. Not everybody's going to call on the Lord and be saved. 
But I'm thankful that anybody can be. You say, preacher, could they have fit everybody on earth in that ark? Nope, but they could fit you and me. And as long as you think of salvation as a everybody else thing, you ain't never going to get in the boat. But until you quit, get your eyes off everybody else and say, what about me? Where am I going to be when the rain starts to fall? Where am I going to be when the waters start to rise? You know what you'll find? There's room in the ark for you. It could hold the faithful, but then number two, it could hold the future. Uh, in fact, the ark was able to preserve man and creation for the future. God saves us, and He doesn't just save us temporarily. He saves us eternally. He saves us eternally. He gives us a new life. He don't just wipe away our old life. He gives us a new life. Hey, listen, that, that, don't you imagine when they reckoned time from that point forward, when they talked about life. Don't You, you know, today when we use uh, calendar dates and terminology, we'll say it is 2000, March 10th, 2019. 2019 what? 2019 from when? Uh, the secularists want to say yeah, that uh, that means, you know, before the common era or whatever. But for years and years and years, we've always said known it to be 2019 A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. In other words, we reckon our calendar back to when Jesus walked on earth. That's what we reckon our calendar back to. They're trying to change all that and trying to sanitize and, 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 and bleach away any Christian ideals and principles from uh, common language and vernacular today. But you and I, we know that's, that's why we say 2000 and... Uh, they say, well, it's before the common era and after the common era. Hey, what made it the common era except that Jesus walked amongst men? They're still reckoning back to that time. Well, don't you imagine in these days, in the years that followed the flood, that when they talked about their time, their date, their calendar, they probably said, you know, it's been this many years since what? Since the flood. It's been this many years since the flood. By the way, I think there's a truth there about Melchizedek. When Melchizedek uh, comes to, to Abraham and it says that he had no beginning. Now, you can believe anything you want about this, but I think Melchizedek was probably Seth. And I think it probably says he had no beginning, not only because no lineage is recorded for him, but because his beginning began before time began in their mind. He lived through the flood. Not Seth, but Shem. He lived through the flood. In other words, time would have began at that point. There was two kinds of life. There was the old life that had been done away with. And there was the new life they were walking in. Aren't you glad when God saves you, He don't just get rid of your old life, He gives you a new life. A new life. So this ship, it reminds me of the Lord Jesus. Then I want you to notice the salvation that Noah experienced. And we're going to be very quick with these next few thoughts. I want you to consider what this ark meant. What it did for Noah. What he experienced in getting on this ark and what he benefited from it. I can tell you this, if Jesus can't help you, and I know He can, but if Jesus couldn't help you, I wouldn't preach Him to you. Let me say that again. If Jesus couldn't help you, I wouldn't preach Him to you. The only reason I'm up here this morning is because I know Jesus can save you, He can change you, He can help you. I know that He can. He's done it in my life. And so let's look at what God did for Noah through this ark. Think with me about four things very quickly. Number one, think about the privilege of the ark. I don't know how many people were walking the earth this day, but I know that eight of them, and only eight of them, got on the ark. wonder what they did to make God let them on that ark. Now, I would go this far to say this, that I believe God would have probably let anyone on that ark that had a desire to get on that ark, but nobody else had a desire. But the Bible makes an interesting statement about Noah. Whenever Noah gets on the ark, the Lord says this, For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. So, in other words, did Noah get to get on the ark because he was a good man? I don't believe so. I, I do believe it was because of his righteousness, but here's the next question. Why was he righteous? 
in a world that wasn't righteous, why was Noah righteous? Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, it's because he lived right. The Bible says that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. That's why God led him on the... I think you're still missing it. There's another statement made about Noah. It's true he was a just man. It's true he was perfect in his generations. It's true he walked with God. It's true he was righteous in the eyes of God. But before any of that was true, the Bible says this about Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now you say, well, preacher, are you saying that he got on the boat because he was a good man? I'm saying he wouldn't have been a good man without the grace of God. The only thing that made Noah what Noah was, was that God had shown grace to him. And I say this, if you're going to get on that ark, you're going to have to get in by grace. It's the ark of His grace. Grace is the only way to get in that ark. You can't get in by your good works. You can't get in by by your righteousness. Only by the grace of God. If you're still... Listen, uh, the, the difference between a man trying to work his way to heaven and a man going there by faith in the Lord Jesus is the difference between somebody riding in the ark and somebody on the outside doggy paddling. Uh, you, you, you can do everything you can, but sooner or later, your unrighteousness is going to overtake you. And you still can't even address your lost condition. At the end of the day, the only way is to get in the ark. And the only way to get in the ark is by grace. Not by good works, not by righteousness, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think with me about the protection of the ark. The ark would have been no good if it couldn't have protected them inside. But the Bible says that throughout that entire time, they were about a year on the ark in totality. Not, we, we don't have, there's a lot of things in that ark. There was a lot of things. There was all kinds of, of, of birds. There was all kinds of animals. There was eight people. There was all kinds of food that was on it. But one thing we never have recorded one time is a raindrop. Is a single leak anywhere. One thing that never got in was the judgment waters of God. Can I just tell you this? If you'll put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll save you. He'll save you completely. He'll save you thoroughly. He'll save you to the uttermost. You'll never again have to worry about the judgment waters of God. Then I notice the presence in the ark. Look at the first verse of chapter number 7. The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. Now you've heard this, but can I just remind you that God didn't say go in. God said come in. You know why? Because the Lord was already in that ark. Uh, The Lord was already in there. Uh, You say, boy, that must have been miserable for that year living in that ark. Oh, I think he had pretty good company. I think he had pretty good company. Day in and day out, when he woke up in the ark, the Lord's presence was ever with him. And I'll tell you this, man, listen, uh, the Lord can make even a barnyard on a boat a blessing with His presence. You say, preacher, I don't know what my life will be. I know it'll be better if the Lord's in it. And I know that if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know God in a personal way. And then finally, I want you to notice the providence of the ark, and I'm done. Look at verse 2 through 4. I want you to notice two important truths. The Bible says the fountains also... Uh, well, I guess it helped if I got in chapter 7. The Bible says in verse 2, "...of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean, two by two, the male and his female." Uh, oftentimes people say, well, how many uh, animals of each type of animal were on the ark? People say, well, there was two of each type. And that's true for the most part, but of clean animals. That means sacrificial animals, God, animals that God would accept as a sacrifice. God commanded Noah to uh, get seven of them together. And you know what that's a reminder of to me? That was a reminder to me that there was going to be sacrifices on the other side of the flood waters. In other words, God, through His providence, gave them the promise of a future. Let me tell you something, nobody can give you a future like God can give you. 
God plans on giving you a future. Why, when He saves you, would He indwell you with the Holy Ghost if He didn't intend on doing more with your life than only saving you? You know that in the Old Testament, the Holy Ghost didn't inhabit people. But Abraham had righteousness imputed unto him. David had righteousness imputed unto him. God doesn't have to indwell you by the Holy Spirit to forgive your sins and to impute righteousness unto you. He didn't in the Old Testament. Why does He do it in the New Testament? Because He ain't done with us. And we're not under the yoke of the law. We're led by the Spirit of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And I'm saying this, God ain't done with you. Uh, you accept the Lord as your Savior. Things ain't ending. Things are just beginning. There was the promise of a future and then the plan of a future. Look at verse number 3. "...of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth." Now, can I just say this? I may be wrong. I've never been in this situation. I've never been waiting for the floodwaters to come and had to build an ark. But I would imagine with everything going on, God probably would not have told Noah to bring seven of each bird except it was something that Noah probably wouldn't have thought to do in the first place. God probably gave him this commandment because he's saying this. Now, Noah, you're thinking about everything inside this ark, but I'm thinking about everything on the other side of the ark. And one of these days, when the waters do abate, things are going to have to start growing again. And the only way that the seed can be spread around and pollinate and populate the world is if there's enough birds that can start in on their migratory paths carrying that seed all over. In other words, God had the future worked out when Noah hadn't even thought about it. Noah didn't have a plan for the future. He wasn't thinking no further than the ark. You know, I found this to be true. When I when I received the Lord as my Savior, I would have never imagined what life was going to hold for me. I didn't plan all this, man. I, I had no clue who I was going to marry, what I was going to do for a living and for my life. I, I had no idea how many kids I was going to... I didn't have all that stuff planned out. But I didn't have to because I gave my heart and life to a God that did have all that planned out. I like what the preacher said this last week. The moment, the, the, the decision that I made when I got born again was the last decision that I'll ever have to make. He's my master. He's the one that's guiding me, directing me, coordinating me, administrating my life. I made that decision for me on December 1st, 1997 to accept Christ as my Savior. It was the last decision I ever have to make. I've made a few of them along the way and made a mess of my life, but I don't have to make those decisions. He's got it figured out. All I have to do is follow His instruction.